Hey, Nick here with a quick note before we start the show, just to remind you to get your tickets for the Weekly Skeptic Live on December 11th. It's at Lola's at the Hippodrome in Leicester Square, central London. We've sold over half the tickets already without very much promotion, to be honest. They're 25 quid or for a little bit more, you can come to the Heliot Steakhouse, also in the Hippodrome, and have a steak meal and a drink with me and Toby. So that is December 11th and it's on eventbrite.com. Search for Weekly Skeptic and we'll see you there. Welcome to the Weekly Skeptic, episode 65. I'm Nick Dixon here with deluded optimist Toby Young. And coming up, it all kicks off in Dublin. Dutch politics gets a big shake-up and Tommy Robinson gets pepper sprayed. Plus loads more and, of course, peak woke. But, Toby, I thought we'd start with this massive story from Dublin. There was a stabbing from an Algerian, or it's believed to be an Algerian, well, immigrant, but he was actually then a citizen because they tried to deport him 20 years ago. It didn't work out and instead he became a citizen. And he's actually allegedly been essentially living on benefits for 20 years. Then he decides to stab a few children. It all kicks off, as you'd expect, as is normal. But then immediately, Varadka condemned the far right. Everyone was called far right, who had a problem with with people being stabbed. I mean, Sky News said Dublin stabbing far right protests after girl five among three children attacked in broad daylight near school. And this was just so shocking. And I... And I replied to it. I just said being angry about children getting stabbed is now far right. And that was like a massive tweet. And people were sim- anyone who tweeted anything similar was getting so many likes because it was so absurd. And in the wake of that, Conor McGregor, of course, the famous MMA fighter, started to kick off and say things like, Ireland, we are at war. And he, he said they deserve torture and death. He said, you reap what you sow. And he, he put long statements almost implying he was going to take political action or run for some sort of office. And then, of course, it was said that he was he he was committing hate speech and the police are now investigating him, which is absolutely shocking. What did you make of any of this, Toby? Yeah, it was um, extraordinary that um, the Irish authorities seem to make much more effort and seem much more exercised by the fact that um, there was some rioting in Dublin on the night the the day the children were stabbed, um, much more of that than they did of the stabbing itself. And it was as though they were relieved to have an excuse to kind of paper over the events that had triggered the rioting and 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 been able to kind of concentrate all their fire on condemning the far right. Um, it was... Uh, and Varadkar's kind of only response, like his solution to the problem thrown up by the fact that three children were stabbed by this migrant of North African heritage. Um, His only solution was to um, expedite the um, hate speech bill that's currently going through the Irish Parliament, um, essentially to make it even harder for people to just talk about the fact that Ireland is admitting a huge number of migrants, and that's causing a good deal of social disruption. Um, and there was, of course, this other um, Irish girl who was actually murdered by a migrant, um, uh, which was in the news a few weeks ago. Um, it seems to be Ireland is almost at breaking point. I, I read a really good 
analysis by um, Angela Nagel, the author of Kill All Normies, who's a Dublin-based writer. Um, and she wrote a good piece for Compact, the American online intellectual right of centre magazine about it. And she said, Ireland, Ireland um, seems to go through these kind of periodic upheavals. Like uh, for a long time, um, the kind of uh, population were kind of cowed, conformist. Um, there was a huge amount of, uh, it was very taboo to in any way depart from the kind of public moral consensus during the kind of Catholic era. And that was an era dominated by the priesthood. Um, and uh, the population were essentially cowed and obedient and did the priesthood's bidding. But eventually that reached breaking point and that regime was overthrown. But it's now been replaced by an almost identical, equally authoritarian society in which the priesthood are kind of open borders liberals. Um, and um, and the population is again naturally very obedient and ideologically compliant. But that too, that new order, appears to now be at breaking point as well. And it's as though Varadka and his fellow travellers are about to suffer the same fate as the kind of Catholic priesthood did, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, that's interesting. But that's a kind of Irish take that suggests it's domestic to them. But of course, it's it's throughout Europe, and we're going to talk about Hit, Wilders later, and it, it's sort of throughout Western Europe, throughout the West, really. So it's a, I think it's a larger theme that people are getting sick of it. And I mean, I, I, I summarized it like this. I said, open the borders, play down or deny crimes by new arrivals, arrest and censor indigenous victims, repeat until society collapses. I mean, that is where we are. And it's kind of a bit like David Amos, where they suddenly said, oh, the online safety bill and Instead of tackling the problem, oh, a radical Islamic fundamentalist has murdered a, a, a Christian politician. It was, it was, oh, it's online safety. It's very similar with this. Even Veradica has been absolutely disgusting, and that, that isn't that what's happening. They've they've opened the borders. They, they've created this culture many people don't want. Of course, there's going to be some violence that comes along with it. But to the liberal globalist, this is just a kind of. Uh, you know, a cost that you can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs. And, and it's just, and now stop talking about it. That's their solution. And I also noticed another wrinkle. I said, it's it's now a hate crime to believe Ireland is a distinct country with its own people and traditions that deserve to be preserved and protected, which is essentially what it is. And you can get 12 months now, I believe, in prison for this hate speech, hate crime law. So Conor McGregor potentially could face that. And, and I, But I also added this, interesting that the liberal regime pays lip service to Ireland being both distinct and oppressed when pitted against the English, but when the stabbing hits the fan, that goes out the window in favour of the global liberal blog. And forgive me for reading my own tweets, it's because I put it better than I'm going to put it today. And that's that's quite interesting. That They sometimes play the leftist game of oppressor oppressed, so Ireland are the oppressed, and they're kind of Celtic, they're perhaps their own distinct people. But then suddenly, when they don't want their children to be stabbed, when they're not sure about you know massive numbers coming into the country and them being kind of pushed out, you could argue, they're, they're suddenly not Irish anymore and they're not a people. I mean, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, it's it's clearly a country in search of an identity, having kind of thrown off the yoke of its kind of Catholic identity. Um, and the idea that it can forge a new, equally cohesive national identity based on diversity, equity and inclusion, which seems to be the project of the current leaders of the country, um, 
seems pretty naive. Um, I don't think Conor McGregor, he's not being prosecuted under the new hate crime law, which hasn't hasn't actually passed yet. Um, it's called the Criminal Justice Incitement to Violence or Hatred and Hate Offences Bill. And under this bill, it'll become an offence punishable by up to five years in jail to incite hatred against a person or group of persons based on their protected characteristics, e.g. race, colour, nationality, religion, disability, sexual orientation, or gender. Um, And what makes the bill um, particularly uh, pernicious um, is that um, you can be uh, prosecuted uh, merely for possessing material likely to incite hatred, um, uh, uh, even if you don't actually share it with anyone. Right. You can have a meme in your phone, and that just, that's different from the English law. Where you have to have shown it to someone. In Ireland, you can now have a bad meme on your phone they can go through and then throw you in jail. That's right. Um, they will be able to if this bill um, uh, uh, becomes law, which it hasn't yet. And there is some opposition to it, but it looks as though Varadkar is going to use what happened in response to the stabbings to try and increase the political pressure to pass this bill. And they, you know, he has the votes anyway, but there is there is a kind of groundswell of opposition. And I was over in Dublin earlier this year um, at a conference of free speech advocates and political opponents of the bill trying to organise opposition to it. So it's not a foregone conclusion. In fact, I have a bet with Michael Schellenberger. I think it will pass, but he's convinced it'll be defeated. Um, so is, is Conor McGregor being punished under the existing 2022 under, legislation? I think that's right. Yes. Right. Okay. Um uh, or, or under the existing legislation. Because I, I saw one that was proposed in 2022. I don't know what, if that's the one that went through or not. Sorry, maybe there's some. No, I think I think I... I think the one proposed in 2022 is the is the one I just referred to. Which okay, hasn't yet all right, through. sorry. So he'll be he'll be he'll be he'll be being investigated under um, an earlier public order. The classic offense. hate speech law. <laughs> the yeah, classical one. hate speech law. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, what's um? I mean, it feels like. Ireland, and as you say, not just Ireland, are locked into a kind of doom spiral. Um, So, you know, populations naturally revolt when the number of migrants um, entering the country uh, becomes too high. Um, And that's, you know, those revolts are triggered when there are, you know, um, violent attacks by those migrants on. Um, indigenous people, um, I, I, though I don't think all of the people actually that the Algerian migrant stabbed were indigenous. One of them was apparently the daughter of a migrant, um, and of course the person who stopped him to complicate things again was a Brazilian migrant. Hit him with his crash helmet. It was a delivery driver, uh, that, and that's all been kind of you know um, put in mitigation of the kind of far right narrative that it's all immigration. Um, but, um, uh, but, but the response of Varadkar and co, and not just Varadkar and co, but um, defenders of kind of um, uh, EU ideology across Europe, when the population begins to bridle at the extent of inward migration and these violent attacks and rising crime, housing shortage, Etc. Um, the the response is never to actually address the problem to try and stem the inward flow of migration. The response is always let's try and suppress the people drawing attention to the problems of this kind of globalist open borders 
policy. Um, and when they try and suppress it, when they when they when they when they you know go after people or introduce new laws which will make it easier to imprison people who dissent, um, far from decreasing the dissent, far from making you know, revolts less likely. It has a kind of Barbara Streisand effect and actually makes revolts more likely. It makes it more likely that people will speak out and challenge the prevailing orthodoxy in the public square. And then they clamp down on them and it's, it, it's a, it, it, or, they, or they introduce even more authoritarian censorship laws. And it's, you know, it's a doom loop. Um, it can only end in kind of open revolt or the election of someone like Gert Wilders. Absolutely. And who is the more far right? I mean, the people getting called far right are just ordinary working people of Ireland. They're just the decent people of Ireland. But the people who are basically trying to radically change a country, you could argue pushed out people. I mean, you know, the Irish population has changed so radically and the immigration has gone up so much that you could argue the people trying to do that then censor and jail anyone who complains about it they're a bit more like Hitler, aren't they? I mean, if you if you take out the white aspect and we're all, we're all like uh, queasy for some reason about talking about white people and stuff and, you know, we're just a Nazi if we say anything about it. But if you take out this skin color, it's like, hang on, you're trying to sort of oppress a group of people, kind of certainly radically change the demographics of their country, then then jail them if they complain. I mean, that sounds more like Hitler to me. But um, And we should also mention, yeah, the guy that stopped it was Brazilian. And there's clearly different types of immigration where some people integrate better than others but what were you going to say on on that you like you were going to say something oh, oh i was just going to say um one of the ironies of varadka wanting to expedite the passage of this hate crime bill uh, through the irish parliament is that one of the new criminal offenses created by the bill is denial of genocide so you know and i think what they have in mind is holocaust denial but then there are other genocides that you could be prosecuted for denying but there are several ironies here. One is that, um, you know, um, uh, one of the founders of the Irish Republic um, was a big admirer of Hitler's and initially denied that the Holocaust had taken place. Um, so they could retrospectively prosecute one of the heroes of Irish republicanism um, under this new law. I'm not going to. Um, but Varadka himself, when he made his public statement about the release of um, Emily Hand, the nine-year-old hostage in Gaza, taken hostage on October 7th by Hamas. Varadka caused um, a huge, huge controversy um, by um, saying what she was lost and now she's been found and completely glossed over the fact that she'd been kidnapped. And he pointed to a larger statement in which he did refer to the fact that she'd been kidnapped, but he didn't mention Hamas, I don't think, in that larger statement. And, you know, he's bordering on. I mean, if you consider what happened in Israel on October 7th as a form of genocide, and it was certainly a pogrom, um, then by refusing to mention Hamas, by pretending that, you know, Emily Hand had just got lost at Westfield and been found by a kindly security guard, um, isn't he bordering on being guilty of genocide denial? Can the parents of Emily Hand please report to the main desk? Yeah, you're right. That's a funny image. Um, yeah, although shocking and disturbing. Yeah, he said, this is a day of enormous joy and relief for Emily Hand and her family. An innocent child who was lost has now been found and returned. And we breathe a massive sigh of relief. Our prayers have been answered. And the, there was a helpful community note on X. Emily wasn't lost. She was abducted by terrorists from Hamas. I mean, 
these community notes are just humiliating these people. Yeah, Varak is just an utter scumbag. He's been a, keep, keep attacking white people, saying, there's, you know, we need quotas, there's too many white people and this and that. There's clips of him saying that. Now he calls the ordinary people far right, puts through these hate speech laws, says that kind of stuff about Hamas. Just disgusting. But who are these people? I mean, they're the extremists. Let's remember that. Mm. They're the extremists. They come in with an extremist ideology that's about race, that's about quotas of certain kind of people and it's against other kinds of people. Then they want mass immigration in just radical numbers. So it's worth remembering, they are the extremists. We had a system of meritocracy and a certain level of immigration that was sort of, you know, still pretty high, but it was like not quite as insane. And they wanted to get rid of meritocracy and they wanted to get rid of border control. They're the extremists. These are, and, they, and they're in trouble because it is not working for them. I know they control everything still, but it's just falling apart from them across the board. Maybe we'll get into that when we talk about builders because I've got a good tweet on that. But yeah, the, and, the, and the responses from media, as I say, Sky News were disgusting. John Simpson from BBC. I don't want to be gl- too gloomy, but we can surely expect more of those disgusting scenes in Dublin last night as more and more people flee to wealthy countries as a, resu- as a result of war and global warming and local people turn nasty. This is a local country for local people. I mean, blames, the pe- I mean, blames climate change. It's absolutely... Beyond parody, that tweet. And I, I had another good one about that, and I'm just looking for it now. This, this show is just going to be all me reading my own tweets because people love that, and I get the best comments about it. But um, the fact that he didn't manage to mention climate, he didn't manage to mention the stabbing. He just blamed climate change. I mean, isn't that just absolutely peak BBC? It is, it, it, it's, but it is, it is sort of um, extraordinarily reminiscent of an earlier period in our history in which we were... Um, Christian countries, and there was um, uh, an undisputed Christian public morality, and people who didn't subscribe to it were essentially heretics who didn't have to be engaged with, certainly didn't have to be argued with, didn't have to be persuaded that they were in the wrong. They just needed to be publicly shamed and ideally excommunicated and certainly um, uh, uh, censored. Um, if they tried to say anything heretical, and that seems to be that you know that if you're not if you don't sign up to the various you know um, uh, uh, maxims of the woke church, we're, we're in the midst of a climate emergency. Um, uh, we should welcome migrants with open arms and not challenge whether they're genuine asylum seekers or not. We shouldn't worry if they bring their dependents with them. Um, uh, all our institutions, our heritage is riddled with colonialism and white supremacy, and we need to atone and make amends for that. We need to pay reparations to developing countries for being amongst the first countries to industrialize. I mean, the, all the kind of maxims of the woke church, are, they're so fundamentally religious in nature. And the attitude of people like John Simpson, Leo Varadkar, to anyone who dissents from them, who challenges them, they don't, they don't even entertain for a second the idea that they might have a point. No, it, 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 they are just heretics and need to be squashed. Yeah, and the more absurd the examples get, I mean, investigating a national sporting hero for hate speech because he's against, you know, mass immigration in his country, but also the stabbing of children. I mean, by a guy who was on benefits from the welfare system for 20 years, that guy is the, the person to be protected. But your national sporting hero who who's loved by the people, who just says, this is a bit off, isn't it, guys? Someone coming into the country, by the way... 
a drain on society in brackets, but but mainly stabbing children. It's like how is but but the the national sporting hero is the one that's at fault. I mean, when they do things that are that absurd, that can only lead to chaos. I mean, people aren't going to accept that, are they? The Irish people who love Conor McGregor, they're not going to accept that, and they're not going to accept their children being stabbed. I mean, it's just they can't control that just with censorship. But there was a great tweet from James Kirkpatrick here who said, "Find you a girl." Sorry. Oh, find a girl. It should be maybe find a girl. But anyway, find you a girl who loves you like a journalist loves migrants who stab kids. I mean, isn't that just it in a nutshell? Isn't that what John Simpson's saying? I'll give you one more interesting take from Jash Delani. Halani, I don't know how you say his name, sorry. He's the old books guy who does these very interesting threads on books. But he said, Conor McGregor's brain runs on thousand-year-old software, victory in battle, dominion over land, shit-talking with bros, and safety for his kids. That's all he understands. Um, he's a man of action like no other. His political awakening will be extremely interesting to watch. As the modern world spins into chaos, ancient archetypes will arise in real time. They already are. And that's quite interesting. I mean, McGregor, he is sort of already being treated like a kind of Trump figure, isn't he? You go from uh, loved, as actually Trump was, and people forget, and he was praised in rap songs and all this kind of thing, and he hung out with the liberal New York people, to instantly hated. And they can do it to anyone. And it shows that they don't care about anyone. They don't even care about national heroes. They only care about their ideology of, of kind of whatever you call it. It's kind of anywhere man, globalist, liberalism, whatever you want to call it. That's all they care about. And so if you say this, you're instantly, you're instantly on the, on the scrap heap and you're on the, you know, in, in the, you're banned, you're canceled and you're in the, in the black, blackballed from society. What do you think? Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it feels like, um, I, I, I think I agree with Angela Nagel that, um, it feels as though the new order in Ireland um, is at breaking point and it won't take much more to kind of break it. Um, and, um, and, and, and the form that will probably take is the emergence of a new right-wing political party which advocates, you know, um, minimal uh, immigration um, uh, as well as possibly withdraw from the EU, uh, but it's just you know the the you'd think the EU would would kind of have more of a sense of self or a more enlightened sense of self preservation. Um, why 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 does it keep doubling down on its kind of anti populist and and unpopular ideology? Um, uh, and constantly, instead of engaging, instead of trying to persuade people who haven't yet bought into the European project, just to kind of suppress their speech, um, it's not going to work. And it just feels like, you know, the whole European project is 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 bordering on collapse and that what we've seen happening in Holland and, you know, Brexit, the likely success of Marine Le Pen in the French presidential election in 2027, followed by Frexit. I mean, it just feels like it can't last beyond 2030. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe this is optimistic, but it feels to me, and no doubt, when 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 the European Union does collapse, um, and Europe um, <laughs> is initially plunged into a kind of chaos, um, uh, Britain will be blamed for having kind of you know um remove the kind of first brick in the edifice in the, in the form of brexit which caused the wall to then come tumbling down um uh will be blamed for any negative repercussions of the collapse of the eu but it now feels inevitable because they they're, they're so 
unwilling to bend, so unwilling to um, defend the project. You saw that during the Brexit referendum. I mean, it was all about project fear and nothing about the positive benefits of being part of the EU. Um, yeah, hmm. I don't see how it can last. And what's happening in Ireland, in Holland and elsewhere just feels like the beginning of the end. Well, that's interesting. Well, let's get on to that then now. I was going to do it after Tommy, but let's do it now. And um, it does it does segue into that. But let me just quickly, on, while I remember on that point about Britain being first, we may have been first on Brexit, obviously we were, but I see us as behind on what's happening in Europe. We're still moaning about Suella Brabham's rhetoric while Europe's actually getting pretty hardcore on immigration. So let's just go into a few tweets on this. Morgoth said, terrible scenes in Ireland. Across Europe, the story is the same. A corrupt political class enriched themselves while importing barbarism for the rest of us and using censorship to quell dissent. And that is where we are. And then End Wokeness had a good sort of summary on this. And you might not agree with all of it, but I'll give you the bullet points that they've laid out. Europe is slowly coming to its senses. Holland nationalist firebrand Hirt Wilders won a landslide in the Dutch election. Germany AFD won by its biggest margin ever in last month's Hesse election. Irish citizens march in the streets against mass immigration after a stabbing attack. French citizens protest against the open border after a stabbing attack. Finland just elected the most right-wing government in its history. Swedish government forced to cut deal for strict immigration laws. Greece, two right-wing populist parties, entered the government for the first time ever. Switzerland, an anti-immigration and anti-woke party, won the Swiss election in October. Uh, Hungary national, nationalist PM Viktor Orban won his fourth consecutive term this year. Italy, Maloney elected as prime minister on the promise of halting illegals, which she hasn't really done, but true on the promise of it. Spain, hundreds of thousands are marching in Spain against the socialist coup. And Marine Le Pen surging in France. So you could certainly argue that, that is what's going on. And with this election of Builders, who has been pretty extreme, and he has toned down his rhetoric on this and someone pointed out he sort of toned it down he said he's going to be the leader for all and all that kind of thing and it's as if holland were just trying to uh, were just sort of keen to elect someone like this and so they kind of went along with that i think that was an ed dutton video i got that from he, he was saying that people you know were, were, were like okay we just want to vote for this guy so in any slight toning down of his rhetoric will be enough and but also people have pointed out the center is sort of collapsing and we're left with the extremes of the left and right in Holland doing better, but there is no center anymore. And, and that seems to be a potential way it's going. What do you think to that? Yeah, I read quite an interesting analysis of why Geert Wilders, is that how you pronounce it? I'm saying I've heard, because uh, Ed Dutton lived in Finland and he seems very smart. He pronounces it Geert Wilders, so I'm just saying that. Geert, Geert Wilders. Um, I read quite a good analysis, which which which... Um, drilled down into why he won so many votes amongst 18 to 24-year-olds um, and uh, whether that's symptomatic of a drift to the right amongst younger voters who, you know, traditionally have, have been left-wing voters and certainly are in this country. And the analysis was that um, high levels of migration in Holland um, have um, meant uh, have created a, a housing crisis, um, which means young people who want to move out of their parents' homes uh, can't afford to rent, let alone buy anywhere, um, because all the available housing has been taken up by migrants. And I've read similar analyses, actually, of um, why rents are so high in cities like London and why young people can't afford to rent and have to 
live at home. Uh, and it's partly because all the available rental property has been bought by or rented by the home office. And the home office are very attractive um, customers for landlords um, because um, not only can you guarantee that they'll pay, but they pay you know a year in advance to kind of secure the housing. Um, uh, but in Holland, 18 to 24 year olds have made this connection between high immigration and unaffordable housing, high rents, whereas London's 18 to 24 year olds haven't yet made that connection and are still, you know, generally on the side of, you know, globalization and open borders. Um, But it'll be interesting to see how things might turn if the penny eventually drops and 18 to 24 year olds in Britain realize that high levels of migration are not in their interests. Absolutely. We are behind in that sense, as I've said, and we still have this uh, professional managerial class who are squeamish about Suella Bradman and her rhetoric. And we, we can't actually do it. It's such a low status opinion in this country to say anything about immigration. But I do wonder with Farage after his successful time in the jungle, although I've heard they're trying to kind of cut away from him now and not allow him as much airtime. But, you know, Farage 2029, as I predicted, Maybe we finally catch up. Maybe it happens sooner because it is happening across Europe. And it's kind of become inevitable. You kind of almost just, and you almost just have to pick a side. I mean, it's going to be tough times for you, Toby, because you're a bit of a sort of liberal. But you, one is almost going to have to pick a side because it's going to be this more nationalistic right versus the kind of insane left. They're, they're going to be the only options. Maybe. Um, that's that's quite bleak. Um <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, we're a bit different but, in England because we don't have proportional representation, so we may, we may yeah. remain a bit different in Britain, as we've discussed yes. on earlier episodes. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, but uh, yeah, and our, our, I think our, our two-party system will, you know, unless it's, I mean, I think there is a real risk that um, Labour um, will bring in PR, whether they have to enter into a coalition with the Lib Dems or not. Angela Rayner was asked about this last week, and she said she was in favour of electoral reform um, and didn't sound like she was making that contingent on whether it would be in, be demanded by their coalition partners or whether they want an overall majority. I mean, in some ways, it would be short-sighted of Keir Starmer to introduce PR if Labour win an overall majority because they'll have won an overall majority with presumably less than 50% of the popular vote. So they'll be benefiting from our first-past-the-post system. But yeah, they might do it. That's why I've never thought he'd do it. Why would he do well, it? He, he might do it just to, he might do it on the assumption that there is a permanent centre-left majority in this country and it would be a way of permanently excluding the right from power. I mean, I think that would be naive. Um, uh, and actually, I think in 2016, right of centre parties collectively won a greater share of the popular vote than left of centre parties. Um, but um, Keir Starmer may think there's practically, well, he may think at the moment there is a clear popular majority for left of centre parties. It's only going to get more left wing as left wing young people form a larger percentage of the electorate. Um, uh, uh, So it's a way of keeping the right permanently from power. Um, So they might do it for that reason. Um, But but if they do, um, then that I think would immediately see the emergence of a national conservative party on the right, which I think would do very well. Yes. And um, to talk more specifically about Wilders, he was banned from the UK 
at one point he he has to have security because all twenty four seven because his friend was killed. He had a very radical plan on Islam, which I think this was from a while ago, and he's now said he'll tone it down. But if you look at his comments on that, he said um, he had a five point plan: one, recognize that Islam is a violent ideology; two, close our borders immediately to asylum seekers; three, start dismantling institutions of Islam; four, lock up everybody who threatens with violence or uses violence or deport them, and get those. Uh, I've, I've got that bit of deport them basically. And five, ask all schools, newspapers, media to show a Muhammad cartoon. Imagine that, not to provoke, but to show that we never give in to threats and violence, and that we proudly support our freedoms. Can you see that coming in uh, in, in England? Eight times. I mean, that is that is. Imagine hearing. I mean, these people think we think Suella Brahma is extreme in this country. Well, um, he he he. I imagine will abandon some of those um, points in the course of negotiating with potential coalition partners. Um, worth bearing in mind that even though his party um, won the largest number of seats, it didn't win an overall majority. And to form a government, he's going to need to enter into coalition with other political parties. And he's not yet the prime minister. And I imagine that um, a lot of these um, points will be negotiated away in the course of the coalition negotiations. Do they have an Islamic party in Holland? I'd like to see him in a, an uneasy coalition with, a, <laughs> with an Islamic party, trying to reconcile their conflicting views. We believe all Muslims should be banned from the country and we should show pictures of Muhammad. And, they, and the Islamic side of our party is against that. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I just, I'd love to see that. I mean, you know, Keir Starr thinks he's got problems. I mean, like, yeah, that's the kind of crazy um, thing you get, though, in, in proportional representation. Yes. Um uh, yeah, no, there are some certainly some unlikely bedfellows in some of these governments. Um, we haven't mentioned the incident in the south of France last week, which is very much uh, in keeping with what we've been discussing. Which I was think it was in briefly this... alluded to in the end wokeness tweet is briefly alluded to, but yeah, okay, go on. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Yes, yeah, it, it, well, it, it referenced the um, demonstrations that followed the incident, but didn't mention the incident. So the incident was that in this. Uh, village in the south of France called Crepol. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, uh, a group of um, uh, migrants of Algerian or North African descent um, arrived at this kind of winter ball at this French village and started seemingly attacking at random various people at the party. Um, and they ended up killing this 16-year-old boy called Thomas and they attacked stabbed several other people and wounded them and um, uh, various witnesses and victims um, have testified to the fact that um, uh, the attackers said that they were intent on attacking white people and that it was a racially motivated attack and some members of the far right in France have described it as a terrorist attack. Um, and there have been various demonstrations and retaliatory attacks in the nearby town where this group of hoodlums came from. And um, Olivier Varane, who is um, a government spokesperson, uh, said it could be, quote, a tipping point for French society, unquote, as though these scenes in the nearby town with kind of warring gangs attacking each other, um, one gang white, 
the other of North African descent, it's as though that's a kind of premonition of what a civil war might look like in France and as though a civil war is coming. Yeah, someone made an interesting point about this tipping point. I can't remember if it was Carl Benjamin or someone else, but the idea that um, you should incorporate some stabbings of children into your culture, that it should be robust. Like that's, that's, that's a society that's probably too robust. Like, should you really say we have to incorporate that into our culture? So, so, oh yeah, here you go. Carl said, nobody ever asked why the authorities are attempting to build a society robust enough to absorb the regular and random stabbing of children. And it was in response to this uh, French society at risk of tipping over after murder of teenagers in Craypop. So, it's a good point, isn't it? I mean, these things, of course, are going to spill over into anger. That's a normal response to the stabbing of children. I mean, you can't really have a society that says, okay, we'll have a certain number of stabbed children a year, but think of the food or whatever it is. I mean, we, we I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, in some ways, what happened in France seems more dangerous um, than what happened in Ireland, because there's no evidence as far as we know that the Irish attack at the school was racially motivated whereas there is quite a lot of evidence that the attack on white people in this French village was racially motivated and once once the kind of you know indigenous white population in France they're called uh, there are various slang terms which um the migrants used to describe the indigenous French. One is um, c'est franc, which is an inversion of français, but that refers to indigenous French white people and is a term of abuse. Um, but um, once once the indigenous white population um, uh, become, you know, become fearful of racially motivated attacks from migrant populations, then you can see that kind of producing... Um, uh, you know, much wider conflict and kind of social breakdown. I mean, whereas it's it's probably um, more ambiguous as to whether the attack in Dublin was was racially motivated. He might just have been, you know, a crazy person. Yeah, but it's still, he was still someone who people will say, well, why was this person who was supposed to be deported 20 years ago, who lived on benefits? Why was he even in the country? And I think what Carl's tweet is implying is you you have to look at, what is the project that makes this worthwhile? We're supposed to believe in some liberal one world project, some sort of utopia that's, that makes the stabbing of children allegedly worthwhile on the journey to that. And this is how all rationalistic, uh, you know, all encompassing ideologies work, of course, communism, fascism, all of them, they want to, they, they believe in a means to an end, whereas conservatives don't believe in that. So, you know, they say there's some sort of end that justifies all this. But what is that end? Is it the economic prosperity that they allege comes from immigration, which I don't think it actually does? Is it the breaking down of all conflict ultimately because we become one? I mean, what is the, the great goal that justifies all this hor- horror? Yeah, I, well, is it the hatred of nation states themselves? Yes, I think. I think it's. I think. I think. Um, well, I think. I think the the reason for open borders within Europe as a sort of fundamental facet of the European project. The rationale in part behind that is that it makes war between European countries less likely. So the European project emerged in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, 
the bloodiest conflict in Europe's history. And there was this feeling that we need to do something to um, uh, to lance the boil of nationalism. Nationalism has caused two world wars. Uh, it's caused millions of people to lose their lives. We, 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 we've spilt so much blood um, in these nationalist conflicts. We need to we need to do something to destroy nationalism. So let's create the United States of Europe and let's have open borders and let's have a free flow of people back and forth between those different countries. And they didn't really anticipate that it would be taken advantage of, or that that, that members of poorer countries would migrate within Europe, would migrate to richer countries, and that people from outside Europe would, once they were in Europe, would find it easy to travel within Europe to the richer countries. All of those problems weren't anticipated. The kind of, I think the vision, insofar as there was a kind of utopian vision, was for a United States of Europe in which the different European countries, which traditionally had been at war with one another, would be able to live peacefully together in perpetuity it was it was it was going to end it was going to end wars in europe yeah and, and a lot of the evils of george soros seem to come from that if you if you want a more benign explanation of soros you look at his childhood although he did actually help nazis apparently at some point but he as a child he you know his family was obviously destroyed by nazis and people say one benign explanation of soros is that he just doesn't want that again and I suppose after the horror of World War Two, you could justify a lot of things to yourself in the hopes of avoiding such conflicts in future. That is true. But the other thing might just be a naivety or denial about cultural difference and that the the liberal doesn't really believe that we are different and just believes in this universal man that isn't yeah. really well, true. One point that um, Dan Hannan and others made during the debate about whether or not to leave the European Union is that it's actually historically ignorant to think, first of all, that um, the European Union was responsible for peace in Europe since the Second World War. I mean, first of all, there hasn't actually been peace, enduring peace in Europe throughout the period. Um, there was the Balkan conflict. Um, but in addition, it was really NATO that kept the peace, that kept the Soviet Union and its Eastern European allies at bay and prevented the Cold War erupting into a hot war in Europe. It wasn't the EU. Um, and, and and the other, I think, more important point he makes is that, you know, there was a hundred years of peace between what, 1815 and 1914 in Europe, when there was a balance of power between different nation states and alliances between different nation states. And actually, um, it was the... Um, uh, uh, collapse of that regime as ideologies like fascism and communism began to spread in the 20th century, uh, undermining nationalism, which brought about those two major conflicts. Um, it was really the collapse of that old way of keeping the peace that had kept the peace for the vast majority of the 19th century that produced the wars in the 20th century. And to blame European conflict, war on nationalism is a naive, ahistoric or unhistorical analysis. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. And if that's true, then they've they've banked an awful lot on, on it and, and, and got it wrong. Um, may, maybe I'll just add one other thing that was related to something we were talking about to do with I don't know, I can't remember exactly what, what point it was related to, but I was watching Tucker Carlson 
and Steve Bannon. And that was interesting because I think it was related to my point about the new positions you're going to have to take. Bannon was actually toning down Tucker. That's kind of where we're at now. <laughs> Steve Bannon, who's thought of as this extreme figure, Tucker was talking about, well, aren't, these, aren't people just going to radicalize? I mean, why wouldn't they? I mean, they're hated. I mean, he was saying that the elites hate Conor McGregor. They hate white people, he kept saying. And Bannon kept just saying, well, it's, it's the working class. It's the working class. And he was toning that. And Tucker was saying, why would white people stand for this? I don't get it. And he was just, like, <laughs> just going all in. And it's kind of mad. This is where we are, though. You know, we've got Elon Musk. It's taking a very strange term. We've got Elon Musk talking about anti-white racism. We've got Tucker Carlson openly talking about it to the point where Bannon's a bit uncomfortable. We've got Wilders in, all those things we talked about in Europe. We are just headed for this. No one wanted this. We wanted our meritocracy. We wanted our normal life that we had in the 90s. But they forced us into this position now where we've got this, where we're going to have radical national identities again. And it's, you know, for better or worse, but that's where where, where we are. It's, by the way, one little lighthearted point is that um, someone put out a tweet. Every populist leader must choose between werewolf maxing and vampire maxing. There's a picture of Javier Millet. Do you see that one? Looking the most werewolf possible and Vilders looking the most vampire anyone's (laughs) ever seen. And the reason I was thinking of Bannon, Carl Benjamin replied to it and said, unironically true, you also know which one they are just by looking. And then a picture of Bannon in full werewolf and Eric Zemmour in full vampire. And it's quite interesting. (laughs) I was trying to think, not everyone fits. You can't really put Trump into it. It's a bit harder to put Trump into it. Yeah. Or Farage. Maybe Farage needs to pick. He'd probably go vampire. Trump, probably vampire as well, I think. I don't know if he could go werewolf, could he? I think he hasn't I think got the I'm, hair for it. I, I'm vampire, you're werewolf, I think, probably. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely today, <laughs> unless I shave. Um Yeah. Uh <laughs> we're not we're not populist demagogues, Toby. We're just I we're just objective analysts with a lighthearted touch. Just reporting back on the facts, guys. Um and speaking of that. Should we go on to, I don't know if that link makes sense. I'm very, very tired, guys. I'm moving house tomorrow. We can talk about it at the end, but, you know, I'm very tired and stressed. And uh, frankly, I think I'm holding it together quite well. But let's go on to this story from about Tommy Robinson. And he was in a cafe eating his breakfast. He kept saying, I've just ordered my breakfast, mate. I've just ordered my breakfast. I've already paid for it. But the police came in and said, well, we're going to arrest you. And he's like, what for? And it was for sitting there and just for being there. I don't and, think that's quite right. Well, I think I think I think I think they said. Um, you're saying that's my spin. No, yeah, they, they, I was they about to read him. from the police exactly what they said. If you want, okay, go on then. Go on. The, refer- the, the Metropolitan police, police said officers working as part of the policing and security operation for the march against anti-Semitism have arrested a 40-year-old man on the Strand. He, he refused to comply with the direction to disperse under Section 35 of the Anti-Social Behaviour, Crime and Policing Act. Further details below, which are. We have been in frequent contact with the organisers of the march in recent days. They have been clear about their concerns that the man's attendance and that of, of those who were likely to accompany him would cause fear for other participants. The same view has been voiced by others. As a result, he was spoken to and warned on more than one occasion that his continued presence in the area was likely to cause harassment, alarm and distress to others. He was directed to leave the area but refused to do so. We're aware that the man had suggested he was in the area as a journalist. This was not a relevant factor in his arrest. Later, they say a man has now been charged in connection with this incident, Stephen Lennon, of course, Tommy Robinson's real name, as everyone always likes to point out, of Bedfordshire, has been charged with failing to comply with a Section 35 direction excluding a person from an area. He has been bailed to appear at Westminster Magistrates Court on 22nd of January. Yeah, so so he, he wasn't arrested immediately whilst eating breakfast. He was arrested when he refused to comply 
when he was told that he was being given a direction to leave the area. Um, uh, it, it's it, it, So the criminal offence was failing to comply with that direction, but he wasn't arrested immediately. I know it wasn't for eating breakfast, and I know they kept saying <laughs> it, I know. But, um, but then some people pointed out, why were they suddenly able to use this law when they weren't before? And some people pointed out this earlier tweet, it's deeply disrespectful to climb on a war memorial, but there's no law making it illegal. In the absence of a law, officers cannot automatically arrest, but they can intervene and make it clear the behavior isn't acceptable. That's what they're seen doing here in this video. So that was about the previous march, of course, and that was November 15th. But Toby, why can't they use this to disperse various undesirable anti-Semites from, from these marches? Yes, well, they could. Um, I don't see why they couldn't. And, you know, I'm certainly not going to defend the police. Um, for you know um applying this law to tommy robinson but failing to apply it to anti-semitic protesters at pro-palestinian marches which you would have thought are certainly um you know they, they could easily arrest people carrying flags and holding up banners with swastikas on them particularly if they're you know in jewish areas or standing outside mosques on the grounds that they're likely to cause people in the vicinity harassment alarm or distress i mean they could they could they could order them to leave the area and if they refuse they could arrest them and it's not out of the question that they might have done that once or twice let's not rule that out it's possible uh, we just might not have heard about it um but uh yeah i, I think um i think it's uh uh i think it's i mean the first point is well is is it is it would you defend the police having this power you know, or would you oppose Section 35 in this particular act? And I think you can imagine circumstances in which it's, you know, you would want the police to have this power. And and one example might be um, uh, pro-Palestinian protesters standing outside a synagogue on a Saturday afternoon, um, uh, shouting from the river to the sea. Um, you can imagine it would be justified if the police wanted to disperse people or told them to leave the area because they were causing or likely to cause the people leaving the synagogue harassment, alarm or distress. Uh, so was it justified in this case? Well, I suppose that I don't think you can claim it was justified on the grounds that the organisers of the march didn't want him there. I mean, I think that that seems like a pretty thin reason. I mean, certainly you can imagine that the organisers of the march, the campaign against anti-Semitism, um, I went on the march, incidentally, I didn't actually see Tommy Robinson being arrested. Um, but you can if they said, yeah, we don't want him to come, we explicitly don't want him to come and tell him he's not welcome, and then he turns up, you're going to see that they'd be alarmed. Um, but I'm not sure that's a sufficient reason for the police to ask him to leave and then arrest him if he refuses to leave, because he's likely to cause the organisers of the protest alarm. Because if that was all that, if that was enough to justify the police's actions, then the organisers of any protest would have carte blanche to stipulate ahead of time who they did and didn't want to turn up and expect the police to remove anyone they don't want to be there. Um, which, you know, and, and the police, when they exercise this power, um, uh, when they issue one of these directives, are supposed to have particular regard for Articles 10 and 11 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the right to freedom of expression and freedom of assembly. Um, did they have particular regard for Tommy Robinson's right to freedom of expression and freedom of assembly in this instance? I mean, that's sort of debatable, but it's not a particularly onerous legal obligation. It's not debatable. Um, they definitely didn't. I mean, I, 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 I just to be clear, I, I don't think that Tommy Robinson should have been 
Um, I don't think the police should have issued a directive and I don't think he should have been arrested for failing to comply with it. I don't think he should have been charged. Um, uh, I think that um, the police should err on the side of permissiveness um, when policing protests. I think um, you know the right to protest is an important civil liberty and the police obviously have um, been quite inconsistent and been much more permissive when policing the pro-Palestinian protests uh, than they have when policing counter-protesters or indeed the anti-Semitism, the March Against Anti-Semitism, although no one else, as far as I know, was arrested on the March Against Anti-Semitism. It was only Tommy Robinson. Um, I'm not sure I buy the journalism argument. I mean, I think I think that the argument for, 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 for not issuing the dispersal order, if that's what it was, um, and then arresting him for failing to comply is that it's just an interference in 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 his right to freedom of expression and freedom of assembly um but i'm not sure the i'm not i'm not sure i buy the journalistic argument i mean he he um he he claimed that he was there. so one exemption to these dispersal directives is they can't order someone to leave an area if they're there because they have to be for their work and Tommy Robinson's defence, I think, that he's going to mount in court is that he was there for work reasons. He was being paid um, by this particular um, uh, news publishing site uh, called Urban Scoop. Um, he, he was, you know, he was a paid journalist on assignment and he had a, a cameraman with him and a couple of other people. He was intending to interview people and presumably post the film on this site, which is largely consists of... Tommy Robinson interviewing various people, various kind of short films. Um, but I think the problem with that argument is um, uh, it looks as though the site may be controlled by Tommy Robinson. Um, uh, and so effectively, he was paying himself to be at the march. And that feels like he's trying to take advantage of a loophole, which the courts, I don't think, will be particularly impressed by. Who knows? Um, but um, yeah, I think that, that um, I, I mean, I, I, I think it, I don't think he should have been. Um, uh, uh, issued with this directive, arrested for failing to comply with it, or charged. Um, I think it would have been better to just let him um, go about his business, interview a few people on the march. I don't think he would have caused too many people harassment, alarm, or distress. I mean, some people would have been distressed at the prospect of being, you know, interviewed by Tommy Robinson. But the problem with his arrest um, is that that completely dominated the coverage of the story. I mean, maybe it's what he wanted. Who knows? I mean, he does seem to like attention. Um, but um, uh, and in, a, in, a, in, a, in an ideal world, he wouldn't have turned up with his cameraman. Um, but, but, but the problem with arresting him when he turned up is that then that's the story. And there's a much better story here. I mean, it was a, it was a really great day. Uh, it was a fantastic protest. It was so different to the pro-Palestinian protests. It was peaceful. It was friendly. Um, everyone was incredibly well-behaved and polite. There were lots of children there. Boris and Carrie turned up. Carrie had their most recent child in a kind of papoose around her neck um, because it was a completely safe, family-friendly environment. And at one point, someone on the stage at the end of the march in Parliament Square praised the police for policing the protest pretty well and for protecting them from counter-protesters, not that I saw any, uh, but partly because there was such a big police presence. I mean, they, they were definitely, it was, definitely felt safe and protected. And when, and when the police were praised from the stage, a smattering of polite applause broke out 
amongst the protesters, very different from from the attitude to the police, to the pro-Palestinian protesters. I mean, it was in such stark contrast to the kind of hate marches we've seen in our major cities over the past eight weeks, every Saturday. It was, you know, it was a beautiful, moving, fantastic protest. And it's just a real shame that it should have been overshadowed by the arrest of one man. Yeah, it shows what we're trying to protect and uh, the civilised culture we're trying to protect versus the kind of extremism and hatred. But um, but I've got to answer some of your Tommy points there. I mean, firstly, I don't know if he does control that website and I don't want to get sued by him. But he is a, no, he is a citizen journalist. He might not, journalist. don't know. He, he is a citizen journalist who just occasionally sparks someone out. Um, you know, that's what he does. So I understand the points about him. I mean, I, I did defend him in, in a sense on GB News recently because, you know, he has been right about things like the grooming gangs and so on. I think he has been mistreated by the state. Uh, I understand lots of people hate him. I mean, Stephen Knight was quite interesting, godless spell checker, an atheist, of course, and I believe centre left. And he said, I've spent a fair amount of my time on here criticising Tommy Robinson. I think he's a liability for almost any cause he associates with. I'm not a fan. It's perfectly consistent to hold this view and still believe it's deeply concerning that the police can yank him off the street and hold him in custody for the crime of wishing to be present at a public demonstration. Some of you may be fine with this because it's Tommy Robinson and you hate him and his views. Fine. But please know that the powers the police are using to justify this are general powers, not law specific to Robinson and his views, obviously, which means they have the power to do it to anyone, including you and the people you agree with. That's obviously one point. And the part about distress... Well, that, that, that's, it, that's not quite right. I mean, the, the police have to um, uh, have a reasonable belief that your presence is actually causing other people in the vicinity harassment, alarm or distress, or likely to. Now, that's right. that's not a hard and fast standard. And of course, the police can interpret it, you know, at their discretion. But it's yeah. not, it doesn't give them carte blanche to arrest anyone they don't like from well, tenure, I was say, a demonstration. That's the whole problem is that that formulation, it causing someone distress. It's, it's too reminiscent of these uh, non-crime hate incidents where you cause a person mm. offence. That could be offensive, your gender critical sticker or and so on. So you cause them offence. So how can that ever work, this subjective causing of offence? In this case, you cause people distress. Of course, Tom Robinson is going to cause people distress. Loads of people on the Hamas march are going to cause people distress. Loads of people, almost everyone causes me distress because it's just what I'm like. I'm a misanthrop with, <laughs> with anxiety. But like, I can't get them all banned from everything. It'd be great if I could. But um, you know, I have to work with people who cause me. You think Lewis Schaefer doesn't cause me distress. What, what can we do with him? <laughs> so this is not a, it's not a useful measure. And, um, you know, Douglas Murray said, hi, Met, please. Can you tell me why you arrested Tommy Robinson for sitting in a cafe? Which is what, see, he's more, his rhetoric's more out, out there than mine. But you never arrested Mohammed Hijab for saying this about our Hindi brothers and friends. I'd love to know. And there was a clip of this that fairly extreme guy. I can't listen to it now because I'm on a podcast. But you can imagine the kind of things he was saying. And Murray also said, I wonder how different Britain would be if our police treated Hamas leaders in Britain with a fraction of the dedication they pursued Tommy Robinson. And this is where people, I think, were sympathising. There was a massive crowd of police in the video around Tommy Robinson once he left the cafe and he was pepper sprayed. His eyes were all messed up. He posted a video and they do have it in for him and the, 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 the vigour and aggression and they're pushing his head down with they're spraying him. I mean, it is different. And, it, and this has been the case for ages with Tommy Robinson. They, they do have a specific... It's just the same theme as, as Leo Varadkar saying, oh, you're far right if you have a problem with this. You blame working class English people who may get a bit aggressive and maybe a bit controversial, but you blame them over the sort of larger aggressor. And we've just seen this again and again. And people, I think, will start to change their view on people like Robinson a little bit. I know he's toxic in this country in a way, 
like I said before, he's not in other countries. You know, Gad Sad will happily interact with him on Twitter, who's sort of a reasonably sort of normal, moderate, anti-woke mm. figure. And, uh, you know, and, and and who else? Just anyone in, in sort of various countries, United States. And anyway, he just doesn't seem to have the same reputation abroad. But in this country, he's ultra toxic. But how long will that last in this new world where it's going to become increasingly stark that there is this radically different treatment of different of, of groups? Yeah. And- but it, yeah, but to a certain extent, um, he does he does bring it on himself. I mean, he, he doesn't seem to try very hard to change his reputation. He He's very confrontational. Um, as you say, he sparks people out from time to time. When he, when he interviews people on camera, it's normally, you know, a very confrontational, gotcha type of interview. I mean, you know, he's like the kind of working class Michael Crick. Um, but um, I suppose, you know, I mean, I, I'm not defending what the police did, but... But maybe, you know, the Met operational commander thought um, better to better to kind of move Tommy on if we can and dissuade him from attending this 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 march. And if we can't do that, arrest him and remove him. Better that than allow him to go on the march, uh, wait for trouble to break out and then try and arrest him, which would be much more difficult. And much more disruptive, particularly if there are lots of young children around. Um, you can see from that point of view, if they thought that you know there was a reasonable likelihood that 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 some kind of disorder would unfold as a result of Tommy moving around amongst the marchers with his followers and his cameraman interviewing people. I mean, you know, it's not inconceivable that he might have kind of got into a scuffle with the police or he might have got into an argument with some of the kind of left-wing protesters present to have no more time for him than they do for Hamas. Um, you can imagine, you can imagine, you know, he would have thought, crikey, you know, we don't want to have to try and ex- arrest him in the middle of a kind of throng of thousands of people once the march is underway better if you know better to avoid that risk by by removing him now that might have been the, the you know the rationale yeah i mean i i've heard all those rationale. look some of those criticisms of tommy there you make are perfectly fair and stuff but at the same time to be very balanced you have to look at the treatment of him by the state i mean they've had him in jail on all kinds of questionable charges that time when he was in solitary confinement could only eat cans of tuna because his food was going to be under threat from you know Muslims in the prison and so on, or people who didn't like him of various kinds. And he was hardly eating anything. He came out massively thinner with a sort of twitch, and it was pretty horrific. I mean, you can imagine, and his family, you know, the way he's had to, you know, protect his family, security, and the constant death threats and so on. You can imagine it doesn't exactly make you more moderate when you're treated like that. I mean, of course, yes, he's cho- he chose all this to some degree, but to some degree it chose him. I always think it's quite fascinating. If you go back to his earliest... He was going to be an engineer on a an aircraft aircraft engineer, I believe. But then he had a scrap. He was having an argument, actually, just with his girlfriend that spilled out onto the street. A guy comes up to stop it. <laughs> Tommy sparks him. Turns out to be an out of, uh, you know, plainclothes police officer. And so that was his first sort of major run in with the law. And after that, he just sort of, he, he sort of, he just got more and more radicalized. And, and by what happened in, in Luton, if you watch his Oxford Union address, it's very interesting because if you just, talking about how his home in Luton was transformed. And I think even people who hate him watch that and they do get a different perspective. And I'm just always interested in the truth. 
and he um he went down a different path. It's quite a fascinating. It's almost be a, make a great movie of someone who was just a normal bloke, really, in some some ways radicalized by his circumstance. But but yeah, and even Douglas Murray has said he's been treated very badly by the state. And as I've said before, you know Murray says the same things just in a posh accent with an Oxbridge education. It's like you know, we need to get these people out of my country. They they come over, you know, they're not part of this country. They they haven't read my book. I mean, he, whatever he said on Trigonometry was pretty. You know, it was pretty out there, wasn't it? He? he wanted to deport. Everyone. I mean, I did tweet the other day, deport virtually everyone, but I did it kind of tongue-in-cheek. Tongue Murray would deport an awful lot of people. Anyway, I think we've covered that fairly well. Oh, no, Just, we've got to say one more key thing. Yeah. What were you, were you going to Is it the same thing you're going to say? Because I, 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 I was going to clarify. Well, you're going, I think it is, so you go first. It's the same thing, yeah. So we, me and Toby, we have telekinesis at this point. It's someone tweeted me. <laughs> why does, and it's got quite a few likes. Why does Toby Young get to decide who can and can't attend the march? Nick Dixon comic, I think it's time to cut ties with Toby and end the Weekly Skeptic podcast. I won't be listening again. Now, I said I don't think he does. <laughs> I was shocked that you got to decide. I knew you had reservations and that you were just uncomfortable about being alongside certain people, blah, blah, blah. And that's all you're right. But are you really yeah. deciding who can and can't attend March? No. I mean, maybe, maybe they're, I think maybe they're jumping to that conclusion because I had said um, in an earlier podcast that. I was helping to organise, or I was part of a group that was cooperating with the campaign against anti-Semitism to try and, to try to organise the march. Um, but um, actually, in the end, I wasn't involved in organising it. The British Friends of Israel, the group I set up with Laura Dodsworth and Alison Pearson and Emma Webb and Francis Hoare and Jan McVarish, Ian Rons, um, uh, we've got a database we've got some, more than 80,000 people have signed our October declaration. And we emailed about 35,000 plus of them, the people who'd said they were happy to receive emails from us to tell them about the march and to encourage them to come. But beyond that, had no organisational role at all. Um, so it, it, the police weren't doing my bidding when they asked Tommy to leave. Okay, we need to clarify that because this actually had, um, this had rather a lot of likes, to be honest. It, you know, it had a uh, it had 46 likes that tweet for a tweet like that that's quite a lot and um, the, the the other thing people say is that um uh i'm a hypocrite because tommy robinson applied to join the free speech union when it was first set up in 2020 and he was rejected but that's not true okay okay well it's good to clarify that as well and and while we're here toby wasn't in epstein's black book or something <laughs> Or he, he was in something, but not I, something I, I was in I was in Ghislaine I, I was in Ghislaine Maxwell's address book, which is often wrongly described as Epstein's little black book. Right, and he didn't visit the island. I can't clarify. I did not that go enough. to Pedo Island. Um, I did not. I never went to his not. bloody house. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it was quite a strange one. And I said, I don't think he does. And then they said, wasn't Toby one of the organizers of the October Declaration and the March? He told the Met. They didn't want Tom Robson there. He was quite open. He doesn't think Tom Robson should go to this in previous marches. I'm not sure why he should be the arbiter of who can and cannot go on a march. They're saying, therefore, just being part of the march organization somehow makes you couple. But you're saying you weren't anyway. Yeah, but- no, I, no. I mean, I, I, and to clarify, I would have preferred it if Tommy Robinson hadn't turned up, not least because it created a drama which then dominated the reporting of what should have been a really positive episode um uh that you know would have given some people some hope um and i think you know it did in spite of 
being slightly overshadowed by that unfortunate episode. But I certainly wouldn't have, you know, had I been one of the organisers, I wouldn't have asked the police to remove him had he shown up. I mean, I would defend his right to protest. Okay. Yeah, well, I said he did say something about it probably not helping the cause. However, I doubt he actually attempted to stop anyone attending but I will ask on the episode you won't listen to. So I was very, very fair. That's exactly what, what it was. <laughs> okay. And this yeah. guy said, this is a strange thing. Like, I won't listen again. It just stop the weekly skeptic. I don't want to dox this person because I'm like, having a mild pop at them. I won't say who it is, but it's just someone, someone tweeting. This idea, it's time to end the weekly skeptic. Really? A million downloads a year of my life? That's over, is it? Because of something Toby <laughs> didn't do. And then you won't be listening again. I mean, there's a bit of narcissism and I won't be listening again. And you should probably end the whole thing. Okay, I'll end the whole thing because one person won't listen. I mean, that's a bit mental, isn't it? You should probably end it. I mean, people are so... (laughs) I think he's trying to to appeal to your conscience. How can you bear to have anything to do with this disreputable person who asked the police to arrest Tommy Robinson? Yeah, yeah. Anyone would have guessed it would be the other way around, that Toby will face constant attacks from his posh mates and his establishment (laughs) mates. Why are you dealing with that nutter? And it's a, but it's actually no. Why are you dealing with? We both we both get it. I tend to get it like Toby's a, he's yeah. sold out and he's a been a cook, and whereas you'll probably get it on like Nick's, you know, too far out there. So we're both going to get it. And um, yeah. maybe we could even swap. Maybe one day we'll swap, and I'll, you'll be suddenly more based. It hasn't happened yet. Um, Toby, do you want to? I'm going to step out for a second. Do you want to quickly do one of our many yeah, ads, I, I, but not I'll so many an... that it's overwhelming to the listener, but just so many that it's cool that we're doing well. Okay. So this is an ad for LifeGuru AI. LifeGuruAI.com brings you the wisdom of AI, providing personalized insights and practical advice tailored to your unique journey through life. Whether you're seeking direction in your career, aiming to enhance your personal wellness, or eager to embark on a path of self-improvement, our AI mentor is available at any moment to offer thoughtful, precise counsel. The platform is intuitively designed to simplify life's complexities, empowering you with clear, actionable guidance. With LifeGuru AI, you gain more than just answers. You unlock a deeper understanding of your own potential and direction. Start crafting a more fulfilling life today with LifeGuruAI.com and embrace the clarity that comes with every inquiry. Experience the transformation with LifeGuru AI, your AI-powered pathway to a limitless life. All right, thank you very much to LifeGuru AI. And now let's go over to Will with our top stories of the week. So I'm here with Will Jones with the Daily Skeptic's top stories of the week. Will, um, you wanted to start by telling us about Chris Whitty's testimony to the Hallett Inquiry last week. That's right. So Chris Whitty, as listeners will, uh, I'm sure know, is the chief medical officer uh, to the UK government. And he is currently the chief medical officer. And he was uh, at the time of COVID uh, 2020 uh, and onwards throughout the whole uh, pandemic. So uh, key, a key figure. And he has, in his evidence to the COVID inquiry, has claimed that the government had no choice or did not have much choice uh, to impose a second lockdown, he said, because infection rates had risen too high. And he also, in re- in relation to the first lockdown, uh, said that it was necessary to prevent, uh, quote, extraordinarily high loss of life. Um, and the reason this is, uh, this is a ridiculous claim, of course, is because we know from not least from Sweden and from other places which didn't, uh, didn't impose the, the lockdowns 
uh, on their population uh, that there was no there was no case in the world of this extraordinarily high loss of life that resulted from not imposing a lockdown. Uh, this is is widely known, well known. It's been known for for years, of course. It was known way back in the spring, as early as the spring of 2020, when Sweden did not experience an, a catastrophe, a death. COVID death catastrophe that spring. Uh, and yet still, here we have the chief medical officer to the UK, who really, really should know better, uh, still giving his opinion to the COVID inquiry, the official the official investigation into what happened and should have happened uh, back during the pandemic in 2020 uh, and later. And here he is yet again repeating uh, that uh, that ridiculous mistruth that, that just simply isn't true. What do you say to the argument, Will, that I've heard some people make, which is, Yes, it's true that um, the infection rate was declining um, when the first lockdown was introduced. Um, but nonetheless, doesn't that prove that had we imposed the lockdown earlier when the infection rate was climbing, that would have uh, meant that the infections peaked earlier than they actually did? Well, the point is that the that the infection rate was already falling uh, when the lockdown was imposed. In fact, Chris Whitty himself uh, told uh, MPs, a committee of uh, MPs in the House of Commons, in uh, in July 2020, so way back in that summer, uh, shortly after all these things happened, uh, he told them that he, he himself told them that the R rate, that's the reproduction rate, had gone below one. That means that indicates a declining uh, epidemic uh, before the lockdown. He claimed that that was because of the measures that they'd taken up to that point. Others may uh, dispute that. Uh, but the point is that, therefore, the claim that the lockdown was necessary and, and instrumental in bringing the infections down uh, was, uh, was is an unfounded claim. Uh, there's, and therefore, uh, the idea that imposing it um, a week earlier would have made uh, would have made a massive difference, as though it was the instrumental uh, key reason for bringing the epidemic uh, so-called under control is uh, is a myth. Um, I suppose if you believe in if you believe that it was that that it did something additional, uh, and there's no evidence for that. But if you believe that it did, uh, then I suppose you could make an argument along the lines uh, that you've um, outlined, Toby. But the crucial point, uh, which is just not being recognised uh, by the inquiry um, or it seems uh, by Chris Whitty himself anymore, uh, is that um, is that the lockdown simply. Uh, simply was not um, a necessary step to bring the uh, epidemic under control, to bring COVID, uh, COVID down, either in the UK, where infections were clearly falling before uh, the imposition of the lockdown on the 20, 23rd, 24th of March 2020, uh, or in places indeed where they didn't lock down at all. Uh, South Dakota, for example, in the, in the United States had no, had no lockdown, and, and most famously Sweden, uh, other countries like Tanz- um, Tanzania uh, and Belarus. Uh, as well as there's a few places around the world uh, which really show us uh, that this is a myth. Okay. Um, second story you wanted to talk about is a Norwegian study, which wasn't a study into the efficacy of masking as a means of protecting the the mask wearer from COVID infection, but actually a study into whether wearing glasses achieved that. Um, but they decided to ask the 3,000 plus people in their sample, um, whether they wore, wore masks as well. And rather surprisingly, at least surprisingly to them, discovered that the mask wearers were seemingly more prone to COVID infection, not less. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, a highly embarrassing result here. So uh, this uh, this was, uh, as you say, field work that was actually based on finding out uh, the slightly bizarre um, question of whether wearing glasses reduced uh, COVID infection rate. Not a not not one of those burning questions I've heard uh, raised over the last few years. But there you go. No, I, I, I do remember Will the, the the people speculating about whether wearing glasses would protect you because one. Um, means of infection was um, uh, spittle in your eye, which would then, from, from an infected person you were talking to, which would then enter your bloodstream and infect you. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm sure that is a, a potential um, or likely infection infection route uh, indeed. But uh, uh, but you, you would have thought that the big holes underneath your eyes, namely your nose and your mouth, might be a, a more significant uh, infection infection point but in any case this um uh, the actual this study that's been published that uh our, one of our uh, contributors uh, guy guy jin that's a pseudonym uh, wrote about for us uh, is uh, took data from that field work to create a study about whether face masks uh, reduce uh, the covid infection rate uh, a much more pertinent question uh, you might have thought given that uh, face masks were uh, mandated um, on uh, millions, billions of people across the world, whereas wearing glasses wasn't. And remarkably, the raw data found a, a 74, 75% uh, higher rate of COVID infection in those who wore masks uh, compared to those who didn't. The authors uh, managed to adjust uh, these highly embarrassing results down to around about 33 uh, to 40% increased uh, incidence of uh, COVID uh, in the mask in mask wearers uh, by adjusting for various things that they said were uh, confounding factors, uh, but st- still uh, an embarrass an embarrassing result. Yeah, and they do they do um, suggest a few innocent explanations for this, don't they? Yeah, sure, absolutely. They they point out uh, limitations, which includes uh, further confounding factors. Most uh, most significantly, uh, that mask wearers may have uh, been more uh, may have worn their masks because they uh, were infected with COVID, um, and and they this study, which as we've said, was about actually about something else, about wearing glasses rather than masks, hadn't taken that into account. So it may be that uh, that people it may well be that people were wearing masks uh, more likely to wear masks uh, who had tested positive, um, maybe were an attempt to protect others uh, so there could be a, a very good a very good reason for it uh, but even so it's yet uh, it's yet another uh, study observational study which certainly doesn't support uh, the idea that wearing a mask is highly efficacious for uh, preventing covid infections such as uh, should justify uh, impinging on people's rights to wear or not wear uh, what they want and wear things over over their faces um, and of course we do just to caveat that though this study seemed to find that masks far from protecting their users from infection made them more vulnerable to COVID infection. But it didn't have anything to say about whether infected people who wore masks were less likely to infect other uninfected people in the vicinity. Sure, which has often been a justification for wearing masks. But I don't believe that um, there's really, I don't think there's been any study that's really uh, looked at that question of transmission. Most of the studies uh, that I've seen, or almost all of them have been about, uh, have been about protecting the wearer. And of course, we do actually have uh, RCT, randomised control trial uh, evidence on mask wearing. There was a famous Danish mask study that came out uh, uh, way back uh, in uh, 2020, 2021, uh, where they um, where they did they did do a proper randomization of people wearing masks and found uh, no significant effect uh, from the masks. There was also an Indian, sorry, a Bangladeshi uh, mask study 
which also found no significant effect. And of course, there was the Cochrane Review that uh, led by Dr. Tom Jefferson, uh, which came out last year, which uh, or earlier this year, which uh, which yet again, once again, found uh, no good evidence for a significant impact from mask wearing. So as, as people point out, for an intervention that has been mandated across the world and that people seem to have a quasi-religious uh, attachment to and uh, making people wear these these uh, rags, these pieces of cloth across their face, uh, the evidence base really just isn't there. Yes, I remember um, Carl Hennigan and Tom Jefferson wrote an account of the Danish mask study for The Spectator shortly after it was published and Facebook removed The Spectator article. Um, from the spectator's feed on Facebook, claiming that it contained false or misleading information. But you probably have to think on balance, you know, Oxford's professor of evidence-based medicine and his equally eminent colleague probably knew a little bit more about how to interpret this study than the content moderator at Facebook, who probably had a BA in gender studies. Anyway, um, the third story you wanted to talk about, Will, was... um, A story by John Stadden, um, a professor now retired of sociology at Duke. And um, he's produced um, three graphs, which he thinks are a very simple way to debunk climate change hysteria. Absolutely, yeah. So uh, Professor John Stadden, Emeritus, as you say, uh, Professor of Psychology and Biology, um, according to the uh, according to the the um, bio that we've uh, put on uh, this excellent article that uh, he put up that he wrote for us over the weekend, um, and he puts uh, three um, three graphs, uh, not graphs that he's created, graphs drawn uh, from a really good uh, solid science uh, from. Uh, elsewhere and uh, the first and they're, and they're really simple to understand uh, which is which is really great for this kind of thing uh, we have first of all we have the long-term historical record that shows uh, a reconstruction of uh, co2 levels and temperature throughout earth's history uh, and really showing the complete lack of relationship between them no correlation um, at all over that time frame showing that the idea that carbon and that really illustrates that carbon dioxide can't be the the fundamental control knob uh, that the level of which uh, determines uh, the temperature of the planet um, also shows that carbon dioxide levels have been significantly higher than they are uh, now in the past. Temperatures have also been significantly higher, um, although not always at the same time. That's that lack of relationship um, again. Uh, so a really crucial graph showing just really undermining that claim that's central to the to the climate alarmist narrative that co2 levels in the atmosphere are the other are the control knob uh, that determines the temperature uh, the second graph uh, is um, is similar it shows uh, temperature and co2 in the more recent paths so in the last a million years or so, reconstructed from things like uh, ice cores in Antarctica. Very clever science behind it. And interestingly, that does show um, on that time frame, that shorter time frame, a relationship between carbon dioxide uh, and temperature on on the planet. But very significantly, it shows that the temperature goes up um, first and then comes down first, and that the carbon dioxide uh, follows it and goes up afterwards. So the warm the warming Earth then results in more carbon dioxide being in the atmosphere and then the cooling earth uh, results in in lower carbon dioxide uh, in the atmosphere and that la- it's, um, it's said to lag by a few thousand years um, suggesting a uh, that there that there is some kind of relationship 
And uh, the suggestion from scientists is that the relationship may be related to the warmer oceans, the warmer water releasing its carbon dioxide, and then the cooler water, the cooler oceans, absorbing more carbon dioxide. So uh, so while there's a relationship, uh, the fact that it's the wrong way around uh, suggests uh, is strongly suggestive. Um, again, that carbon dioxide is not the control knob that is uh, determining the temperature. And then there is a third graph, uh, which is well worth well worth looking at, uh, which is a little more complicated to explain on uh, on a podcast. So I don't think I'll um, I'll go into into full detail about it, but well worth looking up. It basically shows uh, that carbon dioxide, while it does have an impact um, on the temperature, so it has that that famous greenhouse effect, warming the planet. It only does so. Uh, when you increase its concentration uh, to about where it is now, about 400 parts per million, the result of doubling it again, which is what people uh, worry about, is that the level as it goes up and increase it more doesn't have any significant effect any further. And that's because the effect of carbon dioxide, like that blanket around the, on, around the planet, the effect of it, as, um, as the physicist William Happer, one of the authors of the graph says, is already saturated. Uh, that means that it's already having its full effect on the radiation, trying to escape from the planet, and therefore doubling it or adding more won't have any further significant effect. As I say, quite, com- quite relatively complex uh, physics, but uh, well worth looking up and really, really crucial for understanding uh, why there's a good scientific basis for being sceptical about this, uh, this, these alarmist, catastrophist claims. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Will, with our top stories of the week. Thanks, Toby. All right, that was Will. And now I think I'll do a quick advert before I go back to Toby because we have a quick message here from the Wild Goose Chef who says, it may seem like we are living through a rather bleak era, but do not be dispirited. Gather family and friends to celebrate the milestones of life. Birthdays, christenings, anniversaries, even funerals. Any excuse is a good excuse to have a party. The Wild Goose Chef specializes in intimate dinners and large parties for up to 100 guests. If you're having a party, you need the Michelin-trained Wild Goose Chef to do the cooking He'll cheerfully take the stress out of all aspects of planning your event so you can relax and enjoy the night. London, Berkshire, Wiltshire, and the Cotswolds, this guy puts himself about. If you're hosting a party, it makes good sense to get a well-trained, experienced, and reliable chef to do all the hard work. So call the Wild Goose Chef on 0779-658-164 or email him at joe at wildgoosechef.com. And the Wild Goose Chef is also a proud member of the Free Speech Union and is happy to offer a 10% discount to other Free Speech Union members. So once again, it's Wild Goose Chef on 0779-658-164 or joe at wildgoosechef.com. So thank you once again to Wild Goose Chef. And now it's time for everyone's favorite section, which is Peak Woke. All right. So Toby, so many potential Peak Wokes. This week, uh, maybe I'll start with this one. The Prodigy changed the lyrics to their famous song "Smack My Bitch Up," and I'm trying to decide if this is Pete Woke because it's like it's not like I'm saying I want to, you know, smack any bitches up. To be clear, but the idea of changing the lyrics to, to a song that I've heard is potentially about heroin use and potentially about general kind of uh, debauchery, and I've heard all kinds of things about it. Someone said it's just the genius site, Lyrics Genius, uh, sorry, says it's about doing things in a vigorous way or something. So we're not quite sure on the exact meaning of Smack My Bitch Up, but they changed it live to Change My Pitch Up, which used to be the other lyric, and it used to alternate Change My Bitch Up, 
I'm just messing up there. But anyway, smack my bitch up, change my pitch up. They took out the bitch element and it was just change my pitch up repeated. So is that peak woke? I think that's pretty peak woke. Yeah, I've got another changing lyric story for you. I don't think it's been reported anywhere yet, but I saw it on X. So someone was um, walking through the streets of Cambridge city centre yesterday, I think, and they encountered a group of carol singers singing Noel, Noel, and they stopped to listen. And they realised that they'd cut out the word Israel from the lyrics, presumably because it it might trigger some pro-Palestinian passers-by. But that's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Noel, Noel. No, well, that's that one, right? No, yeah. Born is the king of. <clears throat> what did they do there? <laughs> I don't know what they Born replaced it with. Born is the king of Palestine. What? That's not the lyrics. <laughs> yeah. Born is the king of somewhere in the it's Middle got, East. It's got to Doesn't rhyme with Noel, hasn't it? Yeah. 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 Born is Noel. Noel. Born is the king. That's shocking. Shocking yeah. scenes. And by the way, the explanation on lyrics genius for smack my bitch up is. Uh, is that the prodigy didn't... Hang on, where does it say? The band took every opportunity to explain that the title is not to be taken literally and means to do something with vigour and intensity. So that, that's smart my picture. But I'm shocked about that Noel one. That is, mm. That's awful, isn't it? Just saying Israel now yeah. is bad. Quite extraordinary. That is extraordinary. I suppose maybe, 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 maybe they don't... The reason they censored the lyric is because it's a reminder that Israel as the name for that part of the Middle East predates Palestine by some distance. Um, uh, maybe they just want to you know, perpetuate the lie that um, that part of the world has only been called Israel since 1948. Uh, and before that, it was Palestine. But it's hard to um, argue that it's a kind of anything Zionist. So you do have Christian Zionist, but because it's a Christian song mm. and the king of Israel, I mean... And Jewish people don't believe Jesus was a savior. So it's an extra complicated wrinkle in there, surely. Yeah. I don't even know where to begin with that. But um, okay, that's madness and and awful. Um, So another one was, did you see that BBC furry episode they had? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was so peak woke. It's... It's so disturbing. It I couldn't. I could barely watch the clip. I watched as much of it as I could tolerate. I sort of had to skip through a little bit because I felt physically sick. But it was someone who's a furry who's dressed up as a bear. It's a fictional, one of these fictional BBC. It was on Doctors, wasn't it? The BBC show Doctors. And it's this furry, it's basically a young guy is dressing up as a sort of teddy bear. And this is his life. This is his identity. It's called Furryland, the episode on Doctors. And it's the guy's called Ethan. He's a non-binary furry and his granddad is unhappy about Ethan's hobby, but an NHS worker educates him that it's all perfectly normal and a part of growing up. So with the bits I managed to watch, the granddad's like, oh, it's disgusting. It's terrible. You know, what's he doing? All, which is normal. That's the normal response. And then, you know, he sort of bonds with him. He goes to this incredibly creepy furry club where these kind of animals, as in weird men dressed as animals, are all sat sort of silently staring. It's like something out of David Lynch or something. And then it looks so disturbing. But then suddenly, he, you know, he says, oh, yeah, I've understood now and I, you know, I'm open to it, whatever. And then the guy hugs his granddad and it's all fine. It's like, that's not the right response, though, if you're a furry. It's like, at best, it's like, put it away because this is your sexual kink I don't need to see. It, you know, you don't have to necessarily kick them out of the house, but you certainly don't want to, You certainly don't go to the furry club and hug them. You sort of go, can you not talk about that at dinner? <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, did you see uh, that there was sort of a furry 
in the 60th anniversary episode of Doctor Who. Um, and uh, it was a, a sort of adorable, fluffy creature called Beep the Meep. Yeah. Um, and um, Doctor Who, David Tennant, was chastised by his um, new sidekick, Rose, um, because he called the furry alien him. And she said, you're assuming he as a pronoun, um, as a way of scolding him. And to underline the point that it was indeed a scold, um, Rose is played by a transgender actress, Yasmin Finney. So Doctor Who is now essentially a vehicle for gender identity ideology. Yeah, um, And then the and thing said it, its only it, pronouns were meep. Meet exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, I thought it was uh, an old clip because someone put a tweet that was false and misleading, and so I thought it was an old clip, so I didn't bother pursuing it, but I did watch it. So that was okay. an up-to-date clip. Well, according to uh, The yeah, Mail, yeah, it was yeah. Uh, a clip from the 60th anniversary episode, which was broadcast <sighs> at the weekend, I think. Where do you begin with that? I mean, it's just so weird, isn't it? I mean, if you do hope if we ever defeat Woke, we just look back and go, what on earth was that about? I mean, it's just, how can that ever be good? You're trying to watch something, and it, you know, you're trying to watch an artistic production and it's just just shoehorned in ideology of the most insane kind imagine yoda started banging on about his pronouns you know <laughs> pronouns i have you know that would be so <laughs> address me by my pronouns you must it would be so weird yeah anyway i essentially want to go to it i don't want to say you've got to go because people get angry but i so i feel like you want to move on and not have any peak woke banter because you've got to go well I'm I've not got to say that anymore on my own podcast. I've got well, I've, QPR are playing Stoke at home, and um, it's our fourth game with our new manager in charge. And we've drawn two and lost one, and everyone's hoping we'll finally win one. We haven't won in eleven games, and we've only won at home once this year. So, um, can they do it on a cold eternal. Tuesday night in Stoke? Is what, is yeah. what comes? No, to mind. not Stoke. But Stoke are coming to us. So, uh, well, that's I'm heading phrase, to Loftus though, Road. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, do you want to do any more? I've got one or two more I could bash out. Uh, I've got um, the the um, uh, America's skinniest state, Colorado, is going to make fat phobia um, a crime. It's going to outlaw fat discrimination. It's going to be a form of discrimination, um, along with gay, racial, religious, sexual orientation. From now on, you won't be able to discriminate against fat people in the state of Colorado, which raises some interesting questions. I mean, if 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 a fat person books a seat on an aircraft and takes up two seats and only wants to pay for one, if you insist they pay for two seats, is that fat phobic? Is that a form of discrimination, which is going to be outlawed in the state of Colorado? Um, and uh, anyway, it's so slightly odd, particularly as Colorado is America's skinniest state. So incredibly, only 25% of the population of Colorado are clinically obese, which makes it the lowest rate 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 the lowest rate of clinical obesity in the whole of the United States. Wow. Yeah, and it just makes sense with the, with the way of virtue signaling is that the skinniest state would 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 have that rule. It yeah. just somehow fits, yeah. doesn't it? Okay, I had this uh, Vice article, although I, I only just read a few bits of it, and let me just get the exact title, which was 100 Ways White People Can Make Life Less Frustrating for People of Colour. And you can imagine the kind of thing. It was just, you know, don't say, even if you haven't seen any racism, don't say that you haven't. And don't get, don't say Africa's a country was one of them. Say it's a continent. <laughs> it was all mental and bizarre. And um, classic Pete Woke. My only other one, it kind of fits in, was 
Claire McCaskill, who, by the way, is a former senator, Democrat former senator, said that Trump was more dangerous than Hitler. And it, her reasoning was, she said, the difference, though, I think, makes Trump even more dangerous. And it's that he has no philosophy he believes in. He's not trying to expand the boundaries of the United States of America. So she was saying that Trump was so narcissistic that say what you want about Hitler, at least he had a goal. <laughs> That's basically <laughs> the point. Trump, he's even worse. Like He doesn't even have an overarching ideology. He's just a narcissist. So that actually makes him worse than Hitler. You're like, Hitler, say what you want. You know, He got stuff done. He had aims. He had dreams. I mean, that is her actual is argument. Bizarre. And she's a former senator. Yeah, that's shocking. All right, is that it for Pete Woke, Toby? I think I've got a few more, but um, I think probably we've, 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 we've had enough. All right, well, that is pretty much it. Uh, Toby's got to go to see QPR probably lose. And um, if you want to go to my other podcast, The Current Thing, I highly recommend it. We just did an episode with Dr. Callum Miller, who gave the arguments for pro-life, and people were blown away by it. They said, I've never even heard some of this. And I was trying to be... I wasn't that objective, but I was semi-objective. And we just released another excellent one with the Reverend Jamie Franklin. If you're into those episodes, Exploring Genesis, we talk about the story of Noah. And we've got loads of great episodes coming up. Um, and actually, I was going to reveal some people who are going to do it, but I won't. But we've got loads of great episodes coming up. And you can also go to buymeacoffee.com slash Dixon to support me and my life. And I always appreciate your help. Leave a comment and buy me a digital coffee. It's not a real coffee. It's just a donation. Buymeacoffee.com slash Dixon or nickdixon.substack.com. And you can subscribe for £5.00 a month. And Toby, what would you like to plug, if anything? I'm going to give another plug to our show on December the 11th, which is definitely happening. Tickets are on sale. The venue's been booked. We booked the technician. Uh, doors open at 6.30. Show stoke goes up at 7. It'll be a two-hour show. And Nick neglected to mention earlier, so he's hiding his light under a bushel. It's going to begin with some stand-up from Nick. The only opportunity you'll have to see Nick do some stand-up because he doesn't do stand-up anymore. He only does it uh, to warm up the audiences at our live recordings of the Weekly Skeptic. So that's not to be missed. And I think if we're lucky, we might get a rare guest appearance from Jordan Peterson. So that that is not to be missed either. Um, and uh, yeah, it's at Lola's, which is the downstairs bar of the Hippodrome. It's got its own dedicated entrance on Cranbourne Street, which is the first left of Charing Cross Road as you walk up the hill with your back to the Hippodrome. Um, uh, it's going to be a great event. Tickets to the show are £25. We've sold half of them already. Uh, it only went on sale last week. Um, so if you want a ticket, go to eventbrite.co.uk or eventbrite.com and um, search for The Weekly Skeptic and you'll be able to buy tickets. But if you absolutely love us and you want to spend even more time with us, you can, for a little bit extra, uh, you can come to dinner with us afterwards at the Hippodrome in the Heliot Steakhouse. Two-course dinner, you get a free glass of Prosecco, and the cost of the dinner ticket includes a ticket to the show as well as a donation to our new podcasting platform. So, um Please do come along. Um, uh, we hope to do these more regularly, but no guarantee we will be. So it's really a rare opportunity to see not only the Weekly Skeptic Live, but to see Nick do some stand-up and a special guest appearance from the much-beloved Jordan Peterson. Wow, so a lot of pressure for me and Peterson there. But um, okay, yes, indeed. And we do do them quite rarely. It's our second one ever. So we, we only did one in May, I think it was, and one now. So that's only two in the year. So absolutely come along. It will be a lot of fun. And the dinner tickets are selling well. So it's already won't be awkward. There's like a nice number of people for the dinner. So, you know, by all means, buy the dinner tickets. That'll be fun. You'll get a steak. You'll get a drink. I think Toby sold a lot better than me there. Yeah, get there at 6.30. Come in at 7. Though you, I'm sure you can come in a bit later if you want. We don't encourage it. If you really can't get there on time, still come and, you know, 
but just be quiet when you come in because someone asked about that. So um, yeah, and the last one was a lot of fun. This one, we're actually doing a slightly smaller venue, even though we sold out the last one, just because we, we have a nice deal with the venue. We just like it. So it's actually going to be even more intimate and exclusive than the last one. It's going to be great. Weekly Skeptic Live, December 11th, eventbrite.com. And this is my last ever podcast in this house. I'm moving tomorrow. Can you believe it, Toby? Not that you really care or anyone cares, but I've been here six years. I feel like uh, Morrissey when he said, goodbye house forever. I never stole a happy hour around here. That's how I feel, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, let's, yeah. hope you're, let's hope you're happier in your new place. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see if I change my personality suddenly. All right. <laughs> well, I think that is it. So thank you very much for listening, everyone. And until next week, of course, stay skeptical. Stay skeptical. Stay skeptical.